Half-Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Cairo released in Japan in 2001, and coming to the U.S. under the title Pulse. That's not a translation of the Japanese title, though. Cairo can loosely be translated to circuit, but it's actually the term for the covered walkway that surrounds the interior of a Buddhist temple. This walkway is the Buddhist equivalent of a cloister in the Western monastic traditions, separating the religious devotees from the secular world outside, so a better title would have been cloister, or if you're not sure audiences would understand the nuances of that title, separation would convey the essential meaning of the original Japanese word. And anyone who's already seen this film is probably violently nodding their head at how much sense that makes in light of the overall story. The film was written and directed by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, no relation to Akira Kurosawa, who never made any American films but is a superstar in his home country. He's the writer and director of 1989's Sweet Home, whose video game adaptation was the prototype for Resident Evil and the entire wave of survival horror games that became a subgenre in its wake. I already covered this in some detail in my episode on Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. And... Kurosawa also directed the horror thriller Cure, and 50-odd other movies. Really, I'm not exaggerating when I say he's a superstar in Japan. The movie was released during a big boom in Japanese horror movies that started with 1998's Ringu, which swiftly became a big boom in American imports and remakes following the success of 2002's remake of Ringu, The Ring, and 2004's remake of Jew on the Grudge, The Grudge. The genre gained the nickname J-horror as a whole. Unsurprisingly, this corresponded with a period of social unrest and economic turmoil in Japan that came to be known as the Lost Decade. During this period, new technologies eliminated the need for a number of jobs, resulting in a spike in unemployment and a corresponding rise in violence and domestic terrorism. For those of you old enough to remember it, this was the decade where terrorists released sarin gas on the Tokyo subway, killing 13 and injuring 50. Unlike in America, where similar economic anxieties were at least mitigated by the boom in tech jobs brought about by the rise of the internet, people who went online in Japan were seen as retreating from the world due to social anxiety. The phenomenon even had its own name, hikikomori, and its grim corresponding phenomenon, kodokushi, referred to bodies of people who died in social isolation and weren't discovered until long after their death. It's worth examining Cairo in light of these twin phenomena, and in case it's not yet clear, this one definitely deserves a trigger warning for self-harm and suicide, because there's not a whole lot of happiness in this film. The movie stars Kumiko Aso as Michi. She's been in close to a hundred film and television productions in her home country, but the only one that horror fans from America might be familiar with is Ring Zero, the prequel to the original Ringu. While the sequels to The Ring in America haven't done big business, it's a major franchise in Japan. Also starring is Haruhiko Kato as Ryosuke Kawashima. He's not quite as prolific an actor as Kumiko, with only about 30 credits to his name, but he's kept busy through at least 2017. Kawashima's friend Harai is played by the single-named Koyuki, who's been in close to 60 films. American audiences would be most likely to recognize her from the Tom Cruise vehicle The Last Samurai, where she played the wife of the samurai killed by Tom Cruise's character. 
She was also in Blood, The Last Vampire. And Michi's friends Junko, Yabe, and Taguchi are played by Karumi Arisaka, Masatoshi Matsuo, and Kenji Mitsuhashi, respectively. As with the two leads, none of them have done any work outside of Japanese cinema, but fans of J-horror might recognize Kenji from the original Tomi, based on a manga by horror legend Junji Ito, and Masatoshi from one of its sequels, Tomi Replay. Tomi is a wild, amazing series based on the concept, what if the thing from the John Carpenter movies was a Japanese schoolgirl, and if that doesn't sell you on the idea, I don't know what will. The movie opens to the sound of a dialing modem over the studio logo, and it's here that I have to make a significant confession. This is a movie that plays very differently if you come to it now than if you watched it on its initial release in 2001 or even 2006 when it came to DVD for the first time. Because in 2001, that dial-up sound was modern, even futuristic, the sound of a strange new frontier colliding with our everyday world and shattering the whole structure of society along with it. But now, it's nostalgic. It's honestly kind of comforting. My wife uses it as a ringtone. Basically, all of the signifiers of terrifying new world that this movie uses are now quaint and old-fashioned, which makes the underlying message of the movie feel like some kind of cranky old person paranoia about how all the kids these days need to get off their concern phones and touch grass. I'm warning you now because I'm sure I'd feel very differently if I'd at least had a chance to look at this film back when it was new and fresh. We then cut to a large cruise ship, where a woman stands on the deck with her back to the camera, staring at a slate-gray sky. One of the crew sees her, but she doesn't turn to acknowledge him, instead narrating the beginning of the whole crisis. It starts with Michi, who, spoilers, is the woman on the ship. I do believe that the reason that Michi and Junko were cast to be so physically alike is because they wanted you to be in at least some doubt as to which one of them survived to the end calling their co-worker Taguchi and getting no answer. Something her friends Junko and Yabe try to reassure her is just a sign that he's preoccupied with the project he's working on for them, but that Michi can't stop worrying about. She goes to visit him and finds the apartment locked, but some things are culturally universal and she finds a spare key hidden next to the front door. Going inside, she finds him apparently in good spirits, finished with the project and happy to direct her to the disc it's on. But when she finds a pile of unlabeled discs and goes back to ask him which one it is, she finds him hanging from an improvised noose in his own bedroom. Even more horrifyingly, he's not dangling off the ground. He's sagged down to his knees, indicating that whatever impulse prompted him to die by suicide, it was irresistible enough to override his natural survival instinct and he didn't even try to lift himself off the noose. It's those little touches that make the movie genuinely unsettling, not just scary. Junko and Yabe try to console one another afterward at a local restaurant, but Junko is more preoccupied with her guilt over her failure to notice Taguchi's problems, and Yabe openly says that he knows how Taguchi must have felt. Obviously, neither Junko nor Michi responds to his admission of suicidal ideation, and I feel like that's a theme of this movie in a lot of ways. It's full of characters crying out with loneliness, living and dead, and finding only people who are uncomfortable with the amount of emotional honesty it requires to respond to those pleas, and who instead decide to bury themselves in trivialities or retreat inside themselves. If there's a part of this movie that feels relevant to today's modern social media-based internet, it's that. Michi and Junko talk more about it at work, but Yabe's preoccupied with the disc Taguchi gave Michi before he died. 
It has the business spreadsheets he promised, but it also has photos of Taguchi's apartment, with a face apparently visible in the reflection from one of the monitors that doesn't belong to him. They zoom in enhanced to get a better look at it. One of those little movie tricks that never fails to bring a smile to my face because it's so transparently impossible in real life, and yet everyone always does it. At least here there's a genuine supernatural explanation for it all. That evening, Michi's TV goes on the fritz, a technological Glitches are a common theme in J-horror of this period, a symbol of their concerns about the rapid pace of advancement in the fields they dominated for most of the 80s and much of the 90s, as well as their collective cultural insecurity about maintaining that domination in the face of continual competition from American electronic firms. It's a double-edged sword. Being number one made them what they are, but if they ever lose that grip, the consequences for their economy and way of life are potentially devastating. Meanwhile, college student Kawashima is taking his first big step onto the internet, plugging in his modem for the very first time and downloading the unfortunately named ISP Uranus Online, complete with a little at symbol where the A should be. If you're an emotional 12-year-old like me, you can't help but snigger a little. When he finally dials in, though, instead of getting a login screen, he sees a series of videos of people wandering through their apartments like zombies, emotionally bereft, followed by the sentence, would you like to meet a ghost? Unsettled, Kawashima turns everything off. But later that evening, the computer turns itself back on and shows him yet more disturbing footage, this time of a man with a plastic bag over his head and a gun in his hand, sitting in a chair in front of a wall on which is written the word HELP over and over and over again. Not understanding what happened, and having very little grounding in computer science, Kawashima goes to the campus computer lab to ask for help, and finds a woman named Hare, who tells him to screenshot it next time it happens. He writes down her instructions on how to do so, as someone who provided technical support to an industry where the median age was 57, I related so hard to this scene, and promises to let her know if he finds anything. There's definitely a flirtatious vibe to their conversation, and he's clearly somewhat smitten with her. Back with Michi, and incidentally these two storylines take so long to meet up that I seriously wondered if the twist at the end of the movie was going to be that they weren't contemporaneous and Hare's ghost was the one haunting Taguchi or something. Michi's mom, played by Jun Fubuki, is heading out on a business trip, leaving Michi alone. She encourages Michi to connect with her absent father, who lives elsewhere in Tokyo since their divorce, but Michi isn't interested. And again, this is something that really plays into the societal concerns of the era, where for the first time the consequences of the workaholic culture that had made Japan such an economic powerhouse in the 80s that everyone in America strove to emulate their behavior were really getting a close examination. The 90s were the last decade where the birth rate outpaced the death rate in Japan, and by 2001, people were really beginning to talk about how that might be related to a constant insistence on valuing loyalty to business over family. And not to get back into the theme of the movie or anything, but it also meant talking about the feeling of isolation that produced. Yabe, meanwhile, gets a call from what sounds like Taguchi, repeating the word help over and over again and he decides to go back to Taguchi's apartment to have a look. It's about here that you really start to notice the empty streets and buses, which would have been even more unsettling to the film's original target audience, as this is all taking place in Tokyo, one of the more famously densely populated cities. Yabe searches through Taguchi's computer equipment and finds a piece of paper on which is printed The Forbidden Room. He then goes into the room where Taguchi died and finds him standing there, 
but when he looks again, all he finds is a stain on the wall that looks like black mold. Shaking off his momentary hallucination, he goes off to find the room mentioned on the piece of paper and see what's so forbidden about it. I feel like there's a quote from Terry Pratchett that perfectly describes this plot point. This reasoning contains almost all you need to know about human civilization, at least those bits of it that are now under the sea, fenced off, or still smoking. He finds the room sealed with red tape, which he removes, and goes inside to find a long passageway leading to a dead end. As he reaches the far end, he turns around and sees someone standing near the entrance, staring at him. She walks slowly towards him, in strange, ethereal movements that look like they were achieved by reverse filming her walking backwards, and... Okay, look. This is one of the most famous scenes in all of horror. It was selected by Shudder as one of the 100 scariest moments in movie history. It has its own YouTube video dissecting it practically second by second, pointing to every detail of the sound design, of the choice of stance and pose, everything about it. And far be it from me to suggest that it's anything but a masterpiece. That said... Horror is all about resonating with the emotional state of the audience, and sometimes you're just not in the right frame of mind to appreciate something even when it's genuinely terrifying. And, well, what I'm trying to say is... <sighs> she looks like she's doing some kind of weird mating dance like those birds from Papua New Guinea, and I found it immensely amusing instead of scary. I'm very sorry to everyone who appreciates this as a masterpiece of modern horror, but I kept expecting her to spread her vibrant tail feathers in the hopes of attracting a mate. Yabe is not as amused as I was, falling over backwards at her approach and hiding behind the only piece of furniture in the room. He looks under it, hoping to at least see where she is from her feet, but they're gone. Which means there's only one place she can be, as her head slowly emerges over the top of the sofa to stare at him ominously, and he lets out a terrified scream. The next day, Junko and Michi are worried about him, but Junko is almost more afraid of going to find him and discovering him dead like Taguchi than she is of not knowing what happened to him. She persuades Michi to wait another day, and sure enough he turns up, albeit with an affect that's utterly bereft of hope and joy and meaning. It's enough to make Michi feel like something genuinely ominous is happening, and seeing her neighbors seal her house with red tape as she leaves for work the next day only cements her concerns. Kawashima, meanwhile, is experimenting with his internet again. By the way, he wears a ton of decorative English shirts over the course of this movie, a phenomenon that never fails to delight me. It's a style of fashion in Japan where they select random words for their aesthetic qualities rather than their meaning, so you get people wearing shirts that say things like water on the thirsty soil or precise dwarf bravery. Kawashima sees the man with the plastic bag over his head, and this time the video runs right up until the point where he pulls the bag off, but Kawashima switches it off before he can see any more and unplugs his computer for good measure. He did remember to press the print screen button, though. When he goes back to the computer lab, it's almost entirely empty with just Hare there, working on a simulation of social anxiety involving dots that push and pull on each other. She agrees to go and see what he captured with his computer expertise, and the two of them head back to his apartment where she downloads the screenshot onto a disc, and due to the magic of ghosts and early computer expertise of the 2000-era movies, gets a whole lot more with it. While she works, they talk a little about why he decided to get onto the internet in the first place, a question that's hilariously quaint in light of 20 years of social and technological development. And when he says he did it to connect with people, she says she doesn't believe people ever really connect. 
deep down, we're always separated. Which is true on some level, even if I don't think the outlook is as bleak as this movie suggests. There's always going to be an unbridgeable gap between communication and communion, at least until we figure out how to directly plug our brains into each other, and we'll never truly know how someone feels no matter how intimate we are with them. But I do feel like Cairo takes that to a depressing extreme, which may be one reason why I did have a hard time connecting with this movie the first time I saw it. It's just such an alienating theme, honestly. Back with Michi, Yabe walks off the job, prompting Michi to ask her boss if she can go after him and make sure if he's alright. The boss, played by Shun Sugata, says it's fine, but warns her that friends inevitably wind up hurting and abandoning each other, and it's not really worth caring about others. Which is just the most freaking bizarre thing to drop into a conversation I've ever heard, although it definitely feels fitting that it's the sort of thing a boss would say to his subordinate, knowing that there's absolutely no chance anyone would call it out for the bullshit that it is. Michi finds Yabe curled up in a supply closet, and he tells her about the ghost he saw. He warns her never to go into the Forbidden Room. Gee, that's good advice, guy who decided to go into something called the Forbidden Room. And tells her that he's cold. When Michi goes to get some blankets, he wanders off. The next day, as she heads to work, she sees a woman jump off an industrial tower to her death in what appears to be a single unbroken take. They actually filmed the shot twice, once with a bungee jumper and once with a dummy, then digitally merged the two takes, but it's seamless looking. It's clear that whatever phenomenon led to Taguchi's death, it's spreading. Kawashima, meanwhile, catches up with Hare at the campus library, where she's researching ghosts because they keep showing up in her simulations. The dots that supposedly represent dead people are popping back up as flickering phantoms, and she doesn't know why. After she leaves, giving Kawashima her number and telling him to call her whenever he wants, Yoshizaki, one of her fellow students, played by Shinji Takeda, says he thinks the same thing is happening in the real world. He points to a shadowy figure in the library that remains almost out of view, telling Kawashima to try as hard as he can to chase it down. Sure enough, it vanishes around the corner and disappears entirely when Kawashima runs after it, and Yoshizaki says that he thinks the afterlife has a finite amount of room for the spirits of the dead. When it fills up, which Yoshizaki says he believes has happened, the ghosts begin to overflow into the real world, possibly through the internet, although if that's the idea it's not made especially clear. Then again, given how badly this film's internet paranoia aged and how well everything else about it aged, maybe it's just as well that they didn't make a big deal about the internet here. The ghosts can be bound into a space with rituals, the red tape, as the color red is often used in Shinto shrines to signify protection from evil or disaster, but once that boundary is breached, they can escape into our world. And although they don't mean any specific harm, they're so powerfully, horrifyingly lonely that simply seeing them infects living people with an existential despair. Which is an awful lot of exposition to hang on one grad student saying, you know what I think. But I love this concept so much, I'm honestly willing to let it slide, even though I think there has to be a better way to convey that concept in an organic fashion. It's a really sophisticated, mature take on Romero's There's No More Room in Hell line from Dawn of the Dead, and I love the cosmic horror of being faced with an existential terror so powerful there's simply no fighting it. It's unsettling in a grown-up way, which you don't get very often in horror because it's usually about the visceral fear of death by violence. Back with Michi, her boss has disappeared and it appears he's not alone. All over Japan, people are beginning to vanish. 
Junko decides to go looking for him, leaving Michi behind to get a phone call from Yabe where he just repeats the word help over and over. What Junko finds, though, is another black mold stain on the wall and someone repeating help me again and again. One of my few complaints about this scene, this feels very much like a repeated beat putting these things so close together. She then goes into a room with red tape on it, not the same one as Yabe entered, this is a different forbidden room because people are creating them all over the place, and Michi chases her down just in time to save her from an encounter with a ghost. This may be Yabe, or it may be their boss, it's hard to tell, just as it's hard to tell who sealed off the room with tape in the first place. We see it happen, but the person is wearing a hooded shirt that conceals their features. They definitely sealed themselves inside, though, so it was either a self-sacrificing act to capture a ghost, or an attempt at protection that went horribly wrong. Michi gets Junko back to her apartment, but it's clear that whatever psychic venom the ghost dished out has already gotten into her system. She's constantly cold, she can't feed herself, she's sobbing and terrified when she's not catatonic with fear, and Michi has no idea how to make any of it better. And Junko's not alone. When Michi goes to get supplies, the store is empty and she winds up simply leaving with armloads of food, at speed because she thinks she sees a ghost of her own in the back of the store. Kawashima, meanwhile, can't get an answer from Hare on the phone, and he winds up going to her lab where he sees that the data she pulled off his computer contains a number of videos of ghosts and suicidal people who've seen them. He finds her wandering around outside her apartment, soaking wet from the rainstorm outside and filled with panic and dread, and although he tries his best to take care of her, she has officially seen too much, TM, and now believes that life and death are equally filled with isolation and loneliness. Kawashima tells her he wouldn't believe in a ghost even if he saw one, foreshadowing if I ever heard it, and that he's hoping to live forever. It's a kind of shallow compartmentalization of life's existential terrors that walks the line between being endearing and frustrating, and it's clearly not what Hare needs right now. Her response, you think that sounds like fun? tells you everything you need to know about her state of mind. Junko's also in a very bad way. She can barely bring herself to swallow, huddling under a blanket and making desperate, pathetic gestures that cry out for a level of intimacy that Michi doesn't know how to provide. The next morning, when Michi wakes, she watches in horror as her friend simply dissolves into a black stain on the wall that then crumbles into ashes and blows out the window, a clue to what happened to all those disappearing people we keep hearing about. We cut back to Kawashima, now playing video games alone in the once-crowded arcade. The question of who's supplying power to everything is, like the question of who's driving the trains and the buses, never answered. He sees a ghost out of the corner of his eye and follows it, and this time he sees a jet-black shadow that turns slowly to face him. And he decides now might be a good time to leave and go see what's up with Hare. He finds her breaking glass outside her apartment building, and she begs him to find somewhere anywhere to go that isn't here. The two of them get on a train and ride it to the end of the line, and in a scene that's actually very sweet, he tells her that he won't ever disappear on her. Only for Hare to panic and decide she needs to go back home immediately, running off literally the second he turns his back on her. This is one of those moments that makes me want to see if the director was maybe going through a messy divorce when he made this movie. At her apartment once again, Hare watches the video of the man with the plastic bag on his head, and this time she sees it all the way through as he takes off the bag and shoots himself just underneath the jawline. It is a literally dreadful moment, but it's not the worst thing she sees in the videos, because one of them is of her, taken from behind. 
showing her as she is in that instant. She turns around, and we see on the monitor as she turns away from it and approaches the unseen figure filming all this, and embraces them, telling them that she's not alone after all. It's a terrifying moment that would be significantly more terrifying if not for the repeated use of a sound effect I can best describe as explosion from an Apple II video game. Kawashima comes back to the apartment, telling her that they can move in together so they won't feel so isolated, and finally breaking his way in with a fire extinguisher. But she's already gone. He goes out looking for her, and finally, 90 minutes into this two-hour movie, he comes upon Michi sitting in a stalled car. I feel like this could have come a lot sooner. Then again, I feel like you can probably trim about 30 minutes out of this film without too much effort. Usually, my episodes tend to be longer the longer a movie is, but this one is sitting very comfortably at a trim time mark, despite being a two-hour-long movie. The two of them work to repair the problem, and she offers to help him find his friend. The two of them finally come upon Hare in an abandoned factory, holding a gun and wearing a plastic bag over her head, and I don't really think I need to explain what happens next. Thankfully, it's not gory, but it's still very tragic, and it leaves Kawashima devastated. The two of them try to leave, but they don't get very far because the car is out of gas. Kawashima remembers seeing a barrel fall in the abandoned factory and goes back to fill up a can for them, but the cap slips out of his hand and rolls across the floor into a room with an open door and red tape around the rims. When he goes in after it, it closes behind him, and as foreshadowed, he comes face to face with a ghost. And I will say, this is a very cool cosmic horror payoff. We've seen that Kawashima is a master of denial and compartmentalization, putting off the horrors of eternity by simply refusing to acknowledge that they'll ever impact him personally. And here he is with this ghost in the room, confronting him with all the things about mortality he's been trying so hard to shut out. Forget all the internet panic stuff, this is the heart of the movie, and it's really, really beautiful. He turns away from it and hides his face in his hands, and the shot is framed perfectly to completely obscure the ghost with his body, and you're sure that when he turns around it'll be gone, but no. It's still there. It's right in front of him. It's waiting for him. And then he rushes at it, certain it's going to vanish when he collides with it, and it doesn't. He just grabs it, and it shocks him so badly that he stumbles to the floor as the ghost says, I am real. And that's it. That's the truth of it. That's what's broken all these people to utter despair. The knowledge that eternity is real, and it's lonely, and sad, and miserable. But I will say there's one thing nobody ever tries to do in all this. They never try to comfort a ghost. They never reach out in sympathy or pity or compassion, only shy away in stark terror and existential dread. And I don't think that's accidental. I think that if there's a positive message to take away from all this, beyond simply we live alone and die aloner, it's that it's never too late to reach out and try to forge bonds of human connection. Caring about people is never a mistake. Because you never know. You might need each other more than you think. But in the movie, Michi comes in to find Kawashima back outside of the Forbidden Room, numb and shocked like the others, and sitting next to the black mold stain that was Harai's body. He's able to stand and walk on his own, and he gets to the car with the gas, but after that he just slumps into the passenger seat in grim silence as they drive through the empty streets of Tokyo. 
The two of them get to the harbor and find a boat as a plane crashes into the city, in a scene that would almost certainly have been cut if this movie was released even a year later, although it was included in the 2006 American adaptation, so maybe there's a certain amount of just a window of time that it would have been unforgivably tasteless, and they drive away, giving up on Japan as a place of safety. And as we return to the ship, we see that this decision has haunted Michi. The man from the beginning, who's played by Koji Yakusho, tells her that they're going to try for Latin America, where they're still detecting radio signals, and if they don't find anyone there, they'll try to refuel and make a new plan. Michi asks him if she made the right choice by continuing to live in the face of all this cosmic despair, and he predictably says yes, because if he didn't believe that, he wouldn't be doing it himself. And Michi returns to her cabin, where Kawashima lies slumped in the corner, saying that she's at least found happiness with her last friend in the world, just as he, like Junko, fades into darkness. The final shot of the film is of the ship, just a speck on the infinite ocean, ultimately and utterly alone. It's a powerful, if bleak, way to end a very dark and depressing movie. And will I hang on to this movie? Yes, but I'll admit, it's kind of a near thing. The movie is a beautiful, bleak, melancholy meditation on isolation and mortality, which is the sort of thing I like in theory, but one thing that's difficult to convey in a discussion of the plot is just how draggy this film is. Every scene feels like it goes on about 30 seconds to a minute too long. The internet stuff never really connects back to the central concept in a satisfactory fashion, and as I say, it has not aged well in an era where the internet has become familiar and mundane, and there are some very obvious bits, like Kawashima and Hare on the train, that feel padded and unnecessary. It's a genuine investment of time and emotional energy to watch it, which makes it difficult to imagine putting it on for fun. But at the same time, it is such a genuine artistic achievement, and one that doesn't have many physical media releases and isn't currently available for streaming, that I can't quite make myself let it go just in case I change my mind. So it's staying on the shelf for now as a film I more respect than enjoy. And if you want to talk about bleak arthouse horror movies, the 100 best moments in horror history, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at at halfhorror, for now, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as Half Price Horror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, stop me if you've heard this one before. It's a movie about a kid named Michael Myers who kills his sister, grows up in a mental institution, and escapes on Halloween night to kill again. Yep, we've come back to the beginning with the 2007 remake of Halloween, directed by Rob Zombie with an all-star cast and one of the most controversial installments of this controversial franchise. See you then.